Welcome to season two of the Pines and Perspectives podcast hosted by Wellhouse Church. This show understands that there is quite a bit of diversity amongst the body of Christ. So we operate according to the motto that certain things are fixed, like the essentials of faith, and the best beer is served on tap, while everything else is just a matter of perspective. What's going on, beer lovers? How are we doing? Hope y'all are doing good out there. Um, If you got some time... Uh, stop and crack a beer with us, and let's have a conversation. But let's first talk about these beers. Go ahead, you first. Me first? Okay. So I've got the Exorcism at Sunset from Clown Shoes Barrel Series. It is an imperial stout aged in bourbon barrels. Um, it is one pint, 10.75% alcohol by volume. Did you 1075 10.75, will not be drinking this whole thing tonight. Drink responsibly, kids. Yeah, will not be drinking the whole thing tonight. And we, you know we love clown shoes because of everything that is lore-based. Um, and we've got a scene, it looks like to be in like a metropolitan area, of a person sitting on the ground, um, and a dude standing over him wearing clown shoes, looks like performing an exorcism. Um, because there's like this red flamey thing coming out of him. Um, kind of a cool thing. Um, but it says on the side, a priestly party crasher saw an evil demon strolling by Sunset Grill in Boston, disguised as a dirty Cretan sporting Crocs. <laughs> he, he caused quite a scene when he whipped out his Bible and cast away the evil spirits, but it's what he had to do to commemorate the occasion. We aged our signature American Imperial Stout, Undead Party Crasher, and Bourbon Barrels. So, that's what I got. Nice. Um, so, I have something from Back Pew Brewing, which is actually in Porter, Texas, which is like maybe an hour, hour and ten minutes from here. Um, so, shout out, shop, support local. Um this is one of their seasonal beers, actually. Um, it's called the Black Habit Schwarz Beer. Um, and the tagline is, drink like a saint. It says, the look of a sinner, the soul of a saint. Although a black habit can have a sinister air about it, we know it is to be the garment of the pious. That's the spirit of our German-style Schwarz Beer. Its appearance says sinner, but the pleasant taste of rich roasted grain says saint. It's complex yet sessionable, which makes for a righteous brew. And unfortunately, I can't tell you what the ABV on it is because HEB put a sticker over it. Oh, it's 5.3. I got it right here. Yep, 5.3. Got it. All right. Cheers. Cheers. Mm, that's good. So you guys know, if you've been listening for a while, I love bourbon barrel aged beers. Yeah. Um, it just does a thing that is more interesting to me. Um, and this, like, categorically 
for a bourbon barrel aged imperial stout right up the center um everything you would expect like the the kind of brown sugar bourbony notes on the back end but the the strong like multi imperial stoutness up nice. front with like that hint of coffee and chocolate thing going on yep that's what that is i'm i'm sitting at a 75 wow yeah um wow that's a good score um mine it's exactly what you'd think it is real dark lots of roasted flavors very german like um it's got a, a weird element of sweetness to it that i really don't love um if i'm being honest so I think I'm more like in the five eight category. Yeah, yeah. I don't uh, the sweet element, but you guys know I'm not a sweet beer person. Yeah, I don't like sweet beers. I much prefer like IPA, sour, tart, bitter style beers. You're that way with many things, though. I don't really like sweet things. Um, even even in his whiskey choices, he tends to lean towards the the more bitter uh, eucalyptus type rye whiskey. Yep. Space. Um, yep. And even when he drinks scotch, 90% of the time, it's Ardbeg, which is an Isla. Yeah, heavy peat, heavy smoke, lots of lots of those kind of strong flavors. It, it's because Cullen has an abrasive personality, and so he likes abrasive flavors. <laughs> uh, he's not wrong. I don't, <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, he's not wrong. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Stuff happens. He, <laughs> he likes to drink things that match his personality. And I I applaud that. I think you should do that. Yeah. Yeah, it's quite revealing. Catch me in a bar and you're like, hey, how you feeling? Oh, yeah. Normal Cullen drinking an IPA. Yeah. <laughs> a bitter old man. Like, yeah. oh. <laughs> Goes into a whiskey bar. Ardbeg only. Like, <laughs> I don't know if it was a good whiskey bar. I might not drink. I only drink scotch in the, in the winter. I mean, that's true. I really, I don't really drink, and I drink whiskey year-round, but I really only drink scotch in the winter. I guess that's true. Um, Anyways, we should probably talk about some theology, shouldn't we? Let's do it. Let's talk about some theology. So today we're going to start a new conversation um, from Engaging Theology, and it's about God and creation. And maybe more so, it's about the way in which God interacts with creation is maybe sure. a better way to say that. Um, and so we're going to spend two weeks on this conversation. Uh, this will be week one. And specifically, we're going to begin with, well, they begin with the story about Lottie Moon, which I'm going to skip. Um not really for any reason other than time's sake. Yeah. And because as great as her story is, she's now become idolized in a tradition that I think is quite harmful and I just don't. Right. I'm not doing that. So it doesn't. It doesn't negate her story. It does not negate her story at all. Yeah, and that's why I'm super happy they used it. Mm. But for that reason and a time reason, I'm gonna skip it. 
So the question that they want to pose is how do we understand the relationship between God and creation? Yep. And what you have to understand is that all of theology, if you're doing theology right, theology should always be evaluated according to eschatology. Hmm. Okay. The end of the story. Yeah. The heck are we doing? We're we're characters in a story waiting to see how it's resolved. Right. So what we make up theologically should be grounded slash rooted in our eschatology. Interesting. Now, the way in which you develop your eschatology is also important. That's for the eschatology chapter in, I don't know, a few weeks. But... Here's something about your eschatology that people don't talk about. They talk about in the book. Your protology must match your eschatology. Mm -hmm. The end of the story must match match the beginning beginning of the story. What God did in Genesis 1 and 2 is not negated because of Genesis 3. No, Mm -hmm. that's what God wanted. That's what God will return it back to. Right. Those must go hand in hand. If they mm-hmm. don't, you have an incongruent story. That's right. Which, not to be crass, but who the F cares? Right. If your story does not resolve the problem created in the beginning, right. it does not tell a story. That's right. So, also, shout out LA Rams. They just won the Super Bowl. Yeah. Congratulations. Horns up. Okay, so I think the first truth that in any conversation about creation we have to establish is what's happening in Genesis 1 and 2. The thing, I got lots of questions about Genesis 1 and 2. I find myself, that's probably the two chapters of the Bible I read most. Because I think they're so flippant important and I don't know what to do with them. Um, they're hard. The thing I'm 100% confident of is that if there was only one thing that Genesis 1 is telling me, it's that whatever this is, yep. this creation thing, that it was made by God somehow and that it was good. Yeah. That creation was good. That's the truth of Genesis 1. Seven times. Don't miss that. Seven times. The perfect number. Genesis 1 told me that what God made was Was good. good. Yeah. It was perfect. Somehow, that good thing God made was corrupted. Lots of questions that come from this, um, for instance, the origin of evil, which we'll talk about next week a little bit, not not in fullness, but a little bit. Uh, questions of theodicy, questions of the problem of evil. We will have all of those conversations or beginning those conversations next week. But the, the world was corrupted in Genesis chapter 3. And the rest of the story 
just had to evaluate my own thoughts. Yeah, I think I agree with this statement. The rest of the story is God revealing himself as restorer. God's trying to fix what was broken. I think I would agree. Now, the way in which some of that happens, I I am not capable of pretending that it's not problematic. Right. Um, but I believe that God is a restorer and he is attempting to restore what was broken somehow. Right. The other thing I will say is, and I'm not sure if I'm at a place where I think this is heretical or not. Okay. I don't know. Um, they would definitely tell you They're that definitely. pantheism oh, yeah. is heretical. Right. I'm not totally convinced that I think it's heretical. I think it's problematic because if God and the world, God and creation are exactly the same, then God is dying alongside the world. And I like, and that what, how could, if God is the world and God is and the world are the same thing, if, if the world is dying, how can it restore itself? You know what I mean? Um, so protology doesn't max match eschatology in that way. Would I be right in saying that? Mm, not exactly. Um, Because I can be harming myself and still have the power to fix myself. Yeah, but you yourself are dying right now. Mm-hmm. Can you stop yourself from dying? N- not eventually. Mm-hmm. I mean, inevitably I will die. Right. But I don't hold control over my own life. Mm, that's fair. If you believe that God that's fair. has control Good over point. it, then he does. Fair point. Um. So I'm not sure that I agree with them that it's heretical. They would definitely say it's heretical. Yeah. Um, and maybe according to church tradition and history, it is. And, you know, maybe I'm just reinterpreting that now. I'm not sure. Um, I'm not a pantheist. Like, I've got no desire to get there. Don't know how people really do. But, and here's what I will say. I understand why they get there. Yeah. So, they then embark upon a conversation of God's identity. And they break it into this, like, two-part two part system of God's identity and God's activity or God's mm-hmm. actions. And they put it into two kind of... Um, systems, one being God Almighty, that that being his identity, mm-hmm. and that his holy love is his activity. Um, if I'm just honest, I love these two men dearly. Um, I think that's a gross oversimplification right. of it. Um I definitely think that there are places we can point to of God's almighty. Um, But I also think there are places where we can point to where it doesn't appear that God is almighty. Also think there are places where we can point to God's holy love. 
I also think there are places where we read the Bible, God doesn't look loving at all. Mm-hmm. Um, now, those are conversations for another day, but I'm right. not going to pretend that those that, that are not exist. there. They, yeah. They, yeah, I'm not going to. Um, so I will say, I think this is a like gross oversimplification of the issues, but I also constantly have to remind myself that this is an intro textbook right. for incoming freshmen into Christian liberal arts institutions that have to take some kind of Bible class to um, meet their core requirements. So I want to point something out that I think is funny on that. As you were talking about that, I was reading this and I read this, this part of this chapter, I don't know, about a year ago now. Um, and I highlighted his holiness does not hinder his love and his love does not hinder his holiness. Uh, at the top left of 106. Um, while I want to believe that, my deconstruction is in a place where I'm like, I'm not sure, buddy. <laughs> it is funny to go back and read your old, your old notations in yeah. books. I'm like, I'm not, I don't know why I, I thought that that was important enough to highlight. I mean, yeah. Like why I, while I want to believe that. Yeah. Just in, in this current state, I can't, I'm not sure about that. <laughs> I get that. It's just funny. Uh Read it again. What did you say? His holiness does not hinder his love, and his love does not hinder his holiness. Yeah, I think I disagree with that statement. Yeah. Like, <laughs> like I, looking at it now and reflecting on it, I'm like, yeah. Especially in the way they're using holiness, because they're using holiness as to say God is other than. Mm-hmm. Other than us. Mm-hmm. Um, and actually. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, I think I disagree with that statement. Um, now we embark upon a conversation of transcendence and eminence. Which is one we've had sporadically throughout the history of this podcast. Uh, yes, it is. Um, it's also quite a confusing construct it is i remember trying to explain it to you the first time and you were getting them mixed up which the only reason i remember that is because i remember when ben blackwell was trying to explain with me and i was getting them mixed up it's such a hard concept to understand but it's actually a really important one you don't really have categories to talk about god and the design of god without these you really don't um and for me, at least, whenever I had this idea down of the idea of transcendence and imminence, I felt like I understood God the way that my brain understands him mm-hmm. a whole lot better. Um, and like I understood more about my theology a lot more once I had this language. Yeah, for sure. For you sure. too? Uh, this language just gave me a better way to taxonomize the things that I was already trying to make up about God. Got you. It just gave me labels to put for questions I was already asking and ways I was already thinking about it. Um, So what is transcendence versus eminence? Transcendence versus eminence is a y-axis scale and creation is at the bottom of the axis and the epitome of godness 
being wholly other than what he has created is at the top of the y-axis. Transcendence is at the top. Eminence is at the bottom. You're somewhere on, on that, this thing. Yeah, you're somewhere on that scale, on that axis, somewhere. I think most people would like to think that they're right in the middle. You're they're not. not. Stop you're thinking not. you're right in the middle. You're not. You're prioritizing one over the other. Um, and I'll also say this. We have people at Wellhouse that prioritize the transcendence of God. And then we have me who prioritizes the eminence of God. I think Clayton probably is leaning eminent, but not sure. Oh, no. I'm, probably, I'm, I'm very much rooted in the eminence piece. Very much. So... Hmm. Yeah. Interesting. The story you told me about your when you got when you're on your cruise actually is not. That that was a weird moment for me. Well, that's a different conversation. That was a weird moment for me. Okay. And I do want to talk to you about that, but yeah. Uh so everybody's on this scale somewhere. And for some people, it gives them comfort to know that God is bigger than they are and has things under control. Um If I can be honest, I think that view is a view of privilege mm. um, because it's a whole lot easier to think God's up there taking care of everything when nothing in my life is really that wrong. Yeah. Um, and then there are other people like me who want to view God as imminent. I don't want God up there fixing every problem. I want God sitting right there suffering alongside me in my problems, which on the flip side of that, since I was critical of the transcendent view, I'll also be critical of my own view. Um, why do I care if he's there if he can't actually do anything about it? Right. You're you're giving and taking at some level if you go to either extreme. Yeah. Right? God's so powerful that he's actually just a deistic God that has no investment in me. Mm -hmm. Or God's so imminent that he's pantheism, like it's pantheism, and actually God can't do crap anyways. Yeah. So it's like, okay, there's probably like there's some sort of balance here. Yeah. But you need a little bit of both in order to make any of it work. But what's funny and the thing about theology that I think is so hilarious is we all understand and we all talk about a need for balance, but none of us are actually fully balanced. It's impossible. Yeah, exactly. It's real it's literally impossible to stay 100% truly balanced. It, it's really not. You always end up prioritizing some texts over others. Correct. And you end up more on one side than the other on Correct. every issue. Correct. There's no no way around it. So they end up going and listing some things. Um, like they talk a lot about Psalm 139. Mm -hmm. They give you some different Bible verses that talk about the transcendence of God, the eminence of God, um, all those types of things. Um. And then they have this conversation of balance. Mm -hmm. And this is what they say. I'm actually just going to read this whole chapter to you. The story of God's work in the world grounds our understanding of God's identity and the identity of the world as God's creation. As Father, Son, and Spirit, God is distinct and transcendent, but also active and imminent. We affirm both. Either or perspectives lead to heterodox positions. Traditions such as deism have so emphasized God's disengagement from the world, transcendence, that they do not fit within the biblical narrative uh, that points to his imminent presence. On the other side, 
Traditions such as pantheism have so emphasized God's identification with the world, eminence, they do not fit within the biblical narrative that points to his distinct nature and identity. With eminence and transcendence, it is not one or the other, but both and, and thus, for some, a mystery. This tension becomes clearer when we consider God's providence over a corrupt world. We will have that conversation next week, but the piece that I want us to leave with, I've been thinking about this a lot. I've been having some conversations with some people. If there's one thing I want the people of Wellhouse Church to know, or if there's one way I could shape your thinking, I would say stop thinking you have to have an answer. Mm. Get out of this idea that I must have an answer. I must have a solution. I must, I must be able to give a defense for why I think this way and just be okay saying it's divine mystery. Like, I don't actually have an answer, but I know, here's what I do know about God. These are the things that I can confidently affirm in the text. And I'm okay accepting that there's a God out there that is good and loving, just, that I don't really quite understand. Thanks for listening to the Pints and Perspectives podcast hosted by Wellhouse Church. Be sure to give us a rating and a review if you enjoyed the episode. It's free and it helps us immensely. Also, feel free to check out our other podcasts.